Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, we have a real treat for you. On the podcast today, we have one of my old undergraduate professors. And I'm just realizing that that phrasing makes us seem far too old than we actually are. We have one of my former undergraduate professors, and more importantly, one of the foremost thought leaders in neuromechanics today. It's Roger Anoka, PhD at the University of Colorado Boulder. Roger's academic career spans five decades as a professor and a researcher, and during his tenure, he has served as the president of the American Society of Biomechanics. He's been part of the research advisory panel for the American Physical Therapy Association, and has received numerous and prestigious awards, such as the Muy Bridge and Borelli Awards from the International Society of Biomechanics, as well as the Basmagian Award from the International Society of Electrophysics and Kinesiology. And wow, that's a mouthful. And if those awards and accolades are not enough, Roger is also a fantastic professor, a keen communicator, and always looking at better ways of explaining neurophysiology and neuromechanics to his students and lay audiences alike. And this is no easy task, as those areas are complicated subjects, which blends the worlds of neurology, biomechanics, physiology, and at times electrical engineering to explain human movement. His area of expertise is practical for ultra runners, as we are beginning to appreciate more and more that endurance performance is not just about oxygen consumption, bioenergetics, and running economy. There's a complicated set of sensors and feedback mechanisms that are also at play. In fact, one position we explore on the podcast is that fatigue, per se, is not the cause of decreases in performance. Rather, it's how we sense and perceive that fatigue that is ultimately what causes us to slow down. Roger literally wrote the book and the textbook on neuromechanics in his book, The Neuromechanics of Human Movement, which is about to be released in its sixth edition. This is a book that I have revered so much that I've held on to for the last 15 years as a reference for my coaching practice. And we pick up the conversation right there. Here we go. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Roger Anoka. Before we get into this proper, I do have a present for you, and that's this. Yes. I've kept this, this book. Neuromechanics of Human Movement. It's the third edition for 15 years. I don't remember what the original publication date of it is. I I take it you still use this in your course, correct? Uh, Yeah, we have a couple of editions after that. (laughs) I'm actually thinking about writing a uh, sixth edition. Oh my gosh, sixth edition. Uh, How hard is it to revise when you go through that? Because I think I remember when this came out, it was... Like it was like the newest edition. You had just you had just revised yeah. it, and you kind of took the class through what was actually revised. So it is a big job to revise a textbook. The way I do it, it's a big job. But the, and the reason I do it is that you, know, as new knowledge is accumulated, and especially as students ask me questions when I'm teaching, that I it's I'm, it's clear I'm not understand explaining it clearly enough. Then I. I, you know, I get ideas about how to present it more clearly. Yeah. But, you know, even after all these years, uh, it's changes are still necessary. Right. <laughs> it's that whole learn one, do one, teach one, right? And yeah, until you yeah, teach it, yeah, it, yeah. Be, it forces you to become a better master at it because you have to explain things to whatever level yeah. you're teaching at. That's why I like uh, teaching so much is that, uh, because if, if you can't teach it well, then you probably don't understand it. Yeah, 100%. We find that with our coaches, too, when we take them through the training process is yeah. we take that learn one, do one, teach one approach to eventually, once they've been coaching for five or seven years, they're the ones training the new coaches, and it gives them a completely different perspective yeah. on the whole process. We're we're going to do some teaching during this during this podcast a little bit because uh, not everybody has not everybody has taken one of your courses, nor right. is a uh, nor is a professor, nor has any sort of neuromechanics type of background. 
And right. so we're initially going to have to like level set things. And the, the way that I want to do this is to just basically describe what happens during a really simple task. And this is kind of harking back to my days in your class where we used a very similar uh, analogy. We're going to use a bicep curl and walk through what is going on neuromechanically as somebody performs a bicep curl, as they add weight, as they start to do it eccentrically and use that as a little bit of a platform for understanding right. first and then get into the, the, the meat and potatoes of what everybody cares about is how to actually train for these things. Because in the trail and ultra running world, we're really concerned about neuromuscular fatigue mm -hmm. because everybody has experienced running down a big, you know, mountain or something like that, or doing a really hilly course and just having less and less motor control as that event kind of goes on, they start to stumble over rocks, their stride becomes super inefficient and on and on and on and on. And I think that, that it's becoming more and more clear that there are some big neuromuscular consequences to that type of long duration, mm -hmm lots of eccentric load type of, uh, type of activity, but we're going to start super simple with the bicep right. curl. So yeah. the, the way I want to do this is let's just describe what is happening from a neuromuscular point of view as I perform this exercise. So I'm staring at a 20 pound dumbbell on the floor mm -hmm. and I want to pick it up and that's all I want to do. I just want to grab the weight and pick it up. What is going on neuromuscularly? as I decide to do that task. Okay, so if, if you've already made a decision that you want to pick this weight up, then what the brain has to do is translate that into some uh, plan of action. So it develops what we call a motor command, which is just an activation signal that it sends down to the spinal cord. And, uh, the spi and this uh, command signal will go to the nerve cells that are going to perform the action or control the action. And these nerve cells are called motor neurons, and they live in the spinal cord. And each one of these motor neurons connects to a few hundred muscle fibers. Um, so the connection between one nerve cell, which is called a neuron, and the muscle fibers, that is the motor unit. So everything we do, ranging from picking up a dumbbell to running, is all controlled by manipulating the amount of motor unit activity. So if you're picking up this weight, then the signal coming from the brain to the spinal cord has to activate enough of these motor units that the force is sufficient for you to lift the weight up. Okay, so there's our simple task. I'm gonna yeah. lift the weight up. We're gonna gradually increase the complexity, I guess, and the effort of this task. Mm -hmm and eventually bring it into reality of actually running. So let's change the scenario and say, instead of 20 pounds that I wanna lift up, let's say I'm gonna, I wanna lift up 40 pounds. Okay. What is different from a neuromuscular perspective between this 20 pound effort and then this 40 pound effort? Okay, so if I can just go back to the idea of the motor unit for a minute and say that uh, when one motor unit is activated, um, it produces a force. I mean, it activates the muscle fibers and they generate a force. How much force that motor unit produces depends on how many muscle fibers it connects to and also the, the intensity of the activation signal. So the intensity of the activation signal means the frequency at which these electrical impulses are sent to the muscle. So there are two components that influence um, the force that a muscle generates. That is the number of motor units that are activated and how much each of them is activated. So if you want to pick up a heavier load, then you have to generate more motor unit activity, which will mean activating more motor units and increasing the frequency of this, these electrical impulses. Perfect. So now we have this pathway to where, okay, I want to do, I, I'm going to do this simple, easy task mm -hmm. to, I'm going to do something a little bit harder. Let's now talk about what starts to change. If I want to take that 40 pound weight and I want to continue to lift it, 
I'm going to do it 10 times, 20 times, and eventually to the point where I can't lift it anymore. What's going on at that stage of the game? So uh, before we before we get to that question, I think there's one other thing I need to explain. Sure. And so when you're doing this uh, biceps curl type of exercise, uh, as you as you realize for sure, there are two parts to it. One is the lifting of the weight, and the other is the lowering of the weight. And what the nervous system is doing during those two parts is quite different. So the, the lifting is pretty easy. It just means you have to, the brain has to activate enough motor units to get forced to lift it. But to lower it now, what the brain has to do is carefully reduce the amount of motor unit activity so that it's less than the force of the weight you're lifting. So we call this a lengthening contraction. Many people call it an eccentric contraction, but I make a distinction between eccentric contractions and lengthening contractions. The lengthening contractions uh, imply a very precise control by the nervous system, whereas eccentric contractions, all you're doing is resisting some force that's acting against your muscle. If you do uh, multiple repetitions of this biceps curl, you can do a certain number before you reach what we might call task failure. In other words, you can't lift it anymore. So then the issue becomes, well, what's caused task failure? So fundamentally, um, this is the domain of, uh, quote, fatigue. And so physiologists have been thinking about this for 125 years and saying that when you reach task failure, is it because of problems that have occurred in the muscle or is it because of problems that have occurred in the nervous system? And the relative influence of the muscle versus the nervous system depends on the activity that you're performing. So if you do something, a very prolonged activity, like run a marathon, and you feel like your performance is declining, most likely the major culprit is changes that are taking place in the nervous system and not in the muscle. I mean, there's very clear scientific evidence that uh, the adjustments in the nervous system are much more critical during long-duration activities. So let, let's kind of get back to this concept you mentioned of an eccentric contraction. And right. I, I agree with you, this term kind of gets thrown around really haphazardly in the, in, in the coaching, the training, the running world, weightlifting world. And I, I'm sure you've seen it. In fact, um, I remember in your, in your class, we had this long discussion of what we should call that. Should we call it an eccentric contraction? Should we call it an eccentric, which always seemed like an oxymoron, right? Mm -hmm. Eccentric contraction or an eccentric lengthening or an eccentric activation of the motor unit. So anyway, that's just more vocabulary, but one of the um, one of the critical points with this type of active lengthening of the muscle fiber is that it can produce more force in that direction versus versus how it can concentrically. Why don't we go over that phenomenon a little bit, and then I think that there are implications for how how that produces fatigue in a running situation. It's true that when you perform an experiment on a muscle that's been removed from some experimental model, so an isolated muscle preparation, and you connect the muscle to a motor that can either shorten the muscle or lengthen the muscle, that the force that you get, the maximum force, is greater during a lengthening contraction than a shortening contraction. It's very clear. But... Uh, that experiment model doesn't easily translate to performance in humans because it assumes that the nervous system can maximally activate the muscle during both shortening and lengthening. And it's difficult. It's very difficult for the nervous system to do that during lengthening contractions. What's more relevant is that the same force can be achieved with fewer motor units during a lengthening contraction versus a shortening contractions. So for human performance, that's the critical issue. 
Not that the peak force is different, but that the, the number of motor units engaged in the activity are fewer during lengthening contractions. Let's so let's talk about adaptation a little bit because as endurance athletes, we tend to almost pigeonhole ourselves into this cardiovascular silo of adaptation. We look at you know, things like mitochondrial biogenesis, and we want to increase red cell mass and all of these things that are inherently linked to the cardiovascular system. We have to, and we have to look at that because they're cardiovascular sports, but it turns out that there are also neuromuscular adaptations to exercise that we're always trying to, to, to tease out when a runner first starts to undertake an exercise program, let's just take somebody off the couch, they go out and they go out and run one of the first things that they're going to experience is, is it feels awkward. The motion feels awkward and they start to develop a little bit of soreness right mm-hmm. out of, right out of the gate. What is going on in the, in that situation from a neuromuscular perspective and how does that eventually become more and more trainable? In other words, how does the human ultimately adapt to that form of locomotion? Um, so that's, that's not a simple question. Uh, <laughs> And to, to give you a reasonable answer, I need to backtrack a bit and talk a little bit about uh, the activation signals that go toward and from muscles. So if we take a, a nerve that's going to a muscle and we cut the nerve and we look inside the nerve, we can see a whole bunch of uh, nerve fibers. These are the fibers that send the signals out to the muscle and send the signals from the muscle back to the nervous system. We have typically assumed that in the nerve that 50% of the large fibers are sending that activation signal to the muscle and 50% are sending information from the muscle back into the nervous system. So this is information about sensations. So in a study in 2011, we found out that that's not a correct assumption, that actually 90% of the nerve fibers in a nerve are providing information about sensations and not uh, their muscle contraction. So why is that important? That's important because it tells us about, about how much the nervous system relies on sensory information. So we go back to this, right, this issue about adaptation that you raise. So when a person begins a new activity such as running and things uh, feel a little bit weird and there's some soreness and so on. Um, The fundamental question from a physiology point of view is, is this due to change, again, is this due to changes that are taking place in the muscle or does it have something to do within the nervous system? So the the answer is not clear. So is the soreness due to damage that's occurring in the muscle you can clearly demonstrate that. You take an, a muscle and you isolate it and you impose these loads on it. You can easily damage the muscle. But we don't do that when we are performing activities uh, without you know, some external motor driving things. Instead, uh, our activities are controlled by sensory information. So there's very clear evidence that uh, this muscle soreness has a very strong component based on sensations that a person is is feeling that are not necessarily related to muscle damage per se. So it's difficult to tease this out. Uh, So what you're saying is from a soreness component... Yes. It's not necessarily coupled with the amount of muscular damage, which you'll hear that time and time again mm-hmm. from coaches and athletes and physiologists. Oh, I have a lot of muscle damage and I feel sore from it. Right. So that's, I, that's exactly the point I'm trying to make. There's, there's no direct association by how, between how much damage has occurred in the tissues involved in the action versus the sensations associated with that. So I, I can give you another example if you if you want me to do that. So l- let's think about stretching for a moment. Okay, so this is something that runners do. Um, and I, uh, we know that if we do stretching exercises, one of the goals of a stretching exercise is to improve flexibility 
And what that means anatomically is to increase the range of motion about a joint. So a person does stretching exercises, either a single session or several weeks of sessions, and their flexibility increases. So again, the basic question, is this due to changes in the mechanical properties of the tissues, muscle and connective tissue, or is it due to change that take place in the nervous system? So scientists who study these kinds of questions, uh, most of us agree that when a person's flexibility increases, it's because they have learned to tolerate greater levels of discomfort as opposed to being any changes in the mechanical properties. So again, it's adaptations within the nervous system and the, what's going on inside a person's brain and their capacity to interpret those signals. So, I mean, it, it's, and, and I suspect that this muscle soreness issue, there's a lot, there's a big component that's related to sensation and not necessarily structural damage in the tissues. So in a perfect world, if we could kind of like wave our magic wand and create better performance, what you would be doing is focusing on interventions that block that sensation from coming back up the chain of events so that you actually recognize it. I mean, is that a plausible, a plausible, <laughs> a plausible fictitious scenario? <laughs> yeah. So it's well, not necessarily blocking it, but learning how to deal with it is right. probably a more important analogy, I, I would say. So this whole concept of like feet, like being able to feel out and actually like recognize these sensations and tolerate them is actually a really practical point from a neuromuscular point of view. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely important point. So let's take let's take this classic trail running scenario that we see that I see a lot as a coach and as an as an athlete, and I want to get your opinion on it. I kind of mentioned from the onset that one of the things that trail runners have to contend with is this this the long duration of exercise and the long duration of descending, which is which has a big eccentric component to it. What we think or what we thought before everybody just listened to this is that that had a lot of muscular breakdown and we had to like combat that muscular breakdown somehow. But what that has produced are all of these different training interventions in order to combat this type of fatigue. And the two that rise to the, to the top in terms of the way that I observe them that I want to get your opinion on are strength training and running hard downhill. So just literally running all the downhills as hard as you can to produce some type of adaptation in order, in order to tolerate that in a race situation. Based on what you know that th that we're combating a lot of neuromuscular fatigue in that situation, are those plausible are those plausible training interventions and how might they actually work for an athlete that is trying to get better at tolerating downhills so I, I think as far as I know the principle of specificity is probably most appropriate I, I think running downhill uh, in which especially the thigh muscles and to some extent the calf muscles are doing lengthening contractions would be the most appropriate approach to try to reduce the uh, the amount of soreness that a person experiences. I wouldn't call this fatigue. So this is another issue that has been a big deal in the physiology literature about you know what what is fatigue, and you can pick up many different papers and get all kinds of definitions, but. In recent years, there's been a bit of a change in the approach in the physiology world as to what we mean by fatigue. So when you were just asking me the question about fatigue, I think what you, what you are sharing with me is a classic physiologist's point of view of fatigue. And, and that's been changing in recent years, and it's largely been driven by uh, clinicians who work with patients who report fatigue. And so... Clinical people like neurologists, for example, uh, they use fatigue as a, as a symptom. So it's just like pain. So if a person has pain, you can't measure it. The only way you can measure it is you ask a person, are you in pain? And you give them a scale. And they say, yes, I'm in pain. 
So now we're beginning to do the same thing with fatigue. So you say to a, a runner, you know, during a race or at the end of the race, are you fatigued? And you give them a scale and they give you a score. Now we're thinking that's the best way to measure fatigue. But that's distinct from the functional consequences of fatigue. And the word there is fatigability. I think that's what you were talking about. So fatigability is how much work can a muscle do before it can't do it, before it reaches its limit. So the functional term is fatigability. A person who's more fatigable can, is only capable of doing less work than one who is, is, is not. So we, I think it's very important conceptually to make the distinction between fatigue as a symptom and its functional consequences with measures of fatigability. Somehow I knew that you would correct some aspect of my vocabulary throughout the course of this, throughout the course of this conversation. And you're not the first nor the last. It seems like every time I bring on, uh, some high level physiologist or researcher or PhD, there's some as there's some aspect of this is how we would prefer to describe it, to have more accurate vocabulary, right. which I think is, which I think is super important, but let's kind of go back to the, the the important points for an athlete that's actually like looking at these propositions, right? Because they're going to be able to, they, they might or might not care about the difference between fatigue and fatigability, but they know that they're going to have to go out into the field, go run 50 miles with 10,000 feet of climbing and things like that. And they want to know how to, they want to know what's going on and then how to better train for them. And as I mentioned earlier, the point of view that most endurance athletes come out this with is from a cardiovascular perspective. Like it takes months and sometimes years to produce some of these cardiovascular adaptations in order to get the aerobic system better. But it's not entirely true, or at least the dose response is entirely anal analogous from a neuromuscular point of view. And par part, of, par part of the reason that we know this and an example that I, that I use a lot is just with the repeated bout effect, where you can take one single bout of eccentric exercise and it provides a protective effect for subsequent bouts of exercise. And we don't see that normally on the cardiovascular side. It's not like I can go out and run. If, if nobody, if I hadn't run before, it's not like I can go out and run two miles and all of a sudden I'm better you know, one or two days later. So let's kind of go through this concept and where I'm going with this, Roger, is I want to try to figure out if we know or if we have some guidelines on what the doses, it, what the dose would be to improve the neuromuscular system. But let's start out with just the repeated bout effect as like a, like a baseline for this. So the repeated bout effect, again, the fundamental question to a physiologist is it changes in the muscle or is it changes in the nervous system? Um, I don't think we know the answer, but I can give you an example. So suppose that I perform some lengthening contractions, a protocol of lengthening contractions with the right leg, and I do it on multiple occasions, and I demonstrate a repeated bout effect on the right leg. Okay? The left leg's doing nothing. And then I measure the left leg, and I see a repeated bout effect in the left leg. It's crazy. And it's done I know. nothing. It's, it's done nothing. I know. So clearly... The nervous system plays a role in the repeated bout effect. I'm not saying muscle doesn't, but there is there are probably both. There are adaptations at both levels. So becoming familiar with the sensations, I think, is a very important part of this. Now, the field doesn't have enough knowledge to answer your other question, is what kinds of adaptations. I mean, I understand practically why this is important, but I couldn't give you an answer with any confidence at all. We can't even agree on what causes the repeat about effects, let alone how to how to control it. Yeah, it's tough, and it's something that I've always struggled with as a coach because, once again, we can look at classic um, in like endurance or, or literature that's more focused on like the traditional endurance sports, so the 10K and the marathon and things like that. And through that, we've developed what I would call like guidelines for adaptation. So we know that. A certain amount of time exposure at a particular intensity can produce a certain level of adaptation. I go out and run at an aerobic pace for two hours and it produces X amount of adaptation that I'm looking for. 
and what I've been trying, what I've been struggling with over the past several years, just with coaching a lot of trail and ultra runners is how do we look at that type of dose response from a neuromuscular Mm -hmm. point of view? Because I I kind of view it as a different problem, right? I don't view it as an aerobic problem and I don't view the Mm -hmm. solutions as aerobic solutions. So I'm always trying to figure, I'm always trying to figure out like where are the guideposts that we can look at to say, okay, we need this amount of exposure or that amount of exposure. You know, I, I understand the question, and, but I just don't think that, that we have the science to answer it. Uh, and, and I do agree with you that it is a different kind of an issue. So uh, we know from several studies that if you do prolonged contractions, low intensity, prolonged contractions, uh, most of the reduction in the force produced by a muscle is due to decreases in the activation signal from the brain. That's very clear. So, I mean, to rephrase your question a little bit, I think it has to be a key element for prolonged running has to be learning how to sustain that level of brain activation. Now, how much training is necessary to do that? I mean, I I have no idea. It's a important question but i don't think we can answer that yeah i i know so here's my theory and you can feel free to bat this away or let me know which what you think about it i mean my theory is is if i have an athlete that is training for an aerobic event trail ultra marathon and we also need to tune their neuromuscular system in order to combat that type of fatigue the amount of work that i need to do specifically in that area is markedly less than the amount of work that we need to spend doing or just general aerobic endurance training. So let me just give you a practical example, right? I'm going to have a runner that runs six days per week. They're going to go out and they're going to train at an aerobic intensity six out of the seven days per week. Once out of every two or three weeks, only once out of every two or three weeks, I'm going to have them do a really hard downhill session. And it's because I know proportionally I need more chronic work on the cardiovascular side than I do on the neuromuscular side. And then you fold into the, then you fold into the equation, all the risk taking propositions and injury and kind of things like that. But I guess my point is, is it's certainly not a twice a week activity that I'm having that I'm having them do I'm having them do it sparingly mm-hmm. and knowing that in conjunction to that they're also training out on the trails and they're getting some sort of neuromuscular adaptation that way maybe in a much lighter setting but anyway that's kind of what I've come down to is that it's a less frequent dose to get an adequate response for I'm so that, that seems perfectly reasonable to me I mean I yeah yeah, and I, mean, I don't know the answer to it either. It's just what I've kind of formulated over the years and seeing athletes yeah. adapt, right? Yeah. Is there anything that we know, and I've been, once again, I've been using this compare and contrast between typical cardiovascular endurance types of exercises and then more neuromuscular types of adaptations. Is there anything we else that we know when we compare and contrast those two that could help give us some guidance on this type of prescription? Um, so I, I guess one thing I'm curious about, so the, the your neuromuscular workouts is primarily focused on downhill running. Is that correct? So what, what are you trying to do to activate like the thigh muscles and the calf muscles? Are you trying to stress them or? Yeah, it's just the run themselves. So, yeah. so certainly we know when we see this in observation, but we also see this in, in, in research that if you're just running a down, if you're just running the same downhill at a higher speed, it's going to stress that system out more. The athlete's going to be the athlete is going to have a higher degree of fatigability. I'm trying to use your vocabulary now that you've enlightened me on. Um, uh, in that session, as opposed to if they're just normally running, but that's the focus. And the the issue that the athletes are trying to combat is late in a race after they've been running for multiple hours, being able to maintain their rate of descent speed. Mm-hmm. And the way that they maintain it is, is they have to keep their coordination up. They have to be able to produce force, you know, or as, as, you know, as they're having these lengthening contractions on, on their quads and things like that. And I don't think anybody 
to my knowledge, has the right prescription in terms of how to actually train for that. So that's exactly what I was thinking when you were talking. I would imagine that as a person is approaching the end of a uh, prolonged activity, that coordination can become an issue, especially if you the activity involves repetitive lengthening contractions and there are different sensations that can influence how the, the timing of the muscle activity. A person probably needs to train to be familiar with the different scenarios that can enable them to accommodate changes in the terrain, for example, or you know the competitive atmosphere of a race. Uh, so I think it's, that coordination is probably quite an important uh, aspect of the training program. Well, and you see this play out in real time because more people fall later in yeah, races versus exactly. earlier in the races, right? <laughs> but so what is going, maybe you, you can, you're going to be able to describe this much better than I, I can, obviously. What is going on that causes athletes to say that they're more clumsy later in a race versus the beginning of the race? What's the physiological neuro, neuromuscular phenomenons that are going on at that point? I'm sorry to be repetitive, but it's got to do with <laughs> sensations, in my opinion. So, uh, so if I can just go back to a little bit of basic neuroscience again, just to put this in some context. So what we know is that the automatic behaviors that our nervous system produce, and running is an example of an automatic behavior. So an animal can run with its head chopped off. It's very clear, right? So these automatic behaviors are, are controlled by small networks of neurons in the nervous system called central pattern generators. You may remember that term. So that we, that in our bodies, we have a bunch of cent central pattern generators. They control things like swallowing, chewing, breathing, and running. So these central pattern generators produce this rhythm. So it means turn on the flexors, turn off the extensors, and do that in an alternating way for each leg. So we have this basic rhythm, but this basic, basic rhythm is modulated by the sensory feedback that we get. So the rhythm can be changed. So the rhythm controlling what the leg muscles will do is modulated by sensory feedback, which depends on what's happening in the person surrounding. So you're running on uneven terrain, you have to perform lengthening contractions in which you are carefully controlling uh, the increase in the length of the muscles, and you're relying on sensory feedback. So if you have disruptions in sensory feedback, then this is going to cause difficulty in having that translated into appropriately timed muscle activation sequences. And so to a layperson, this would, see, this would appear like, oh, well, I'm being clumsy. I'm not controlling things carefully. I don't know how long my strides should be. My strides are becoming more variable, my wits, and, and so I'm afraid of falling over. So the, the burden on interpreting these sensory signals is immense and could probably have significant consequences. And I think with your training program and having your athletes do this, you know, once uh, such a training session, is probably a key in them learning how to reach their peak performance in these types of events. Yeah. And from a, as a practical consequence, we always see the most amount of performance discrepancy over the last third of races versus the first mm -hmm. two third of races, which isn't that indifferent from a marathon or a lot of other races, but it's very market in an ultra marathon situation that the athletes that do really well, they're creating that performance separation over the last third of the race and not over the first two thirds of it. So how, how do you see that when you're watching an athlete? What do you see is happening during that in terms of what their legs are doing? Okay. So this is, this is going to lead into another question that I have. So literally, and I've been in the situation where I've gotten the opportunity to pace athletes for the last half of a race, or I go out and I crew for them, uh, during, during an ultra marathon. And it's, it's um, apparent to me because I've looked at a lot of athletes in a biomechanical setting. Essentially, the the biggest thing that sticks out is their ground contact time is longer yeah. at the later part at the latter parts of a race versus the earlier parts of a race, and that's not just because they're running slower. It's yeah. not proportional to their decrease in speed later which you would always expect you run slower. There's long ground, ground, con uh, ground contact time and things like that. 
And what I interpret that as, to your point, is a disruption in the nervous system for sending the feedback in order to take the next movement. Right, exactly. That part of fatigability. And it's actually, this brings up my next point, runners intuitively have figured this out and one of the other strategies that they've used to kind of like circumvent this is intentionally changing their gait. And this got a lot of attention several years ago where they hooked a lot of runners up to these biomechanical sensors that just looked at their gait patterns from the beginning of a race to the end of the, to the middle of the race to the end of the race. And they found out that they used slightly different gait patterns as the race went on whether they were doing consciously or uh, subconsciously. But it's, it's led to this notion that a way that you could combat some of the fatigability that's going on is to intentionally change this gait pattern to save something. And I don't know how much water that holds or not. Maybe you can give us a perspective on that. So I think the uh, the key issue in in the question that you asked is this something that a runner can do intentionally, or is it a consequence of changes in the output from the central pattern generator? I would tend to uh, think it's the latter. I don't. I would be very surprised if a person can while running decide, deliberately decide to change my gait pattern from a rear foot striker to a a forefoot striker. Uh, I think that would be difficult on a step-by-step basis. And so if you are having these kinds of adaptations, I think, I would guess, in the absence of data, of course, that um, what the person is doing is that the sensory input is changing the pattern that it's that the central pattern generators are producing so this could be for example pain that's developing in a foot muscle or in parts of the foot or discomfort that a person is experiencing or accumulation of metabolites within the muscle these all generate sensory signals that have the possibility of changing the rhythm that's being generated by the central pattern generator so i would be more inclined that it's a consequence of these sensory signals, these sensations, rather than some well-planned out strategy to change the uh, what muscles are being activated. I'm getting a little bit of a chuckle out of this because we see this in the marathon a lot, right? Where athletes that succeed, they tend to, they tend to look the same at the end of a marathon as opposed to the beginning. Yeah. And athletes that are you know, falling back through the pack, they just tend to look worse. I mean, everybody has this observation whenever they've looked at a race that they can tell, Hey, they looked like this earlier and they look like this now, whether it's a marathon or ultra marathon or whatever. And what you're saying is, is that is a direct result of how the athlete is sensing the environment around them and changing their pattern or changing their gait pattern accordingly. It's also the environment within them, within themselves. I mean, in addition to around them. I want to go back to this concept of the central pattern generator. And I apologize that I didn't send you uh, notes on this uh, earlier, but I do remember that part uh, from your course. And I remember a a lot of the animal models that, uh, that we had discussed about were done in cats. Um, This is, I think this is going to be just interesting. I don't know if there's an, uh, uh, a take home point for athletes on this, but this concept that animals can run without super spinal input is absolutely fascinating, but everybody should know this because of the phrase running around like a chicken with their head cut exactly. off. Exactly. <laughs> but nobody connects the two. Nobody actually connects this phrase that has been passed down for years and years and years to this concept that animals don't need superspinal input or their brain to locomote. So let's go ahead and explain why chickens can run around with their heads cut off. But this is not a trivial uh, issue because it has practical, I mean, clinical significance for humans because when a human has a spinal cord injury, the fact that you can produce locomotion without a connection to the brain is very important. So what we know from the the studies that you just mentioned is that 
if you cut the connection from the brain down to the brain stem and the spinal cord, so there's no connection, and you stimulate a part of the brain stem, you can induce locomotion. So a cat can walk, for example. So we know now in, in research that's looking at humans with spinal cord injuries, if you take a human who has who cannot walk, has lost the connection, and you provide electrical stimulation to the back of the spinal cord, now that's where the sensory information is coming into the nervous system. In a human, you activate the sensory fibers very carefully, you can produce locomotion. So, I mean, we, we just have not, we don't appreciate enough that, very important role of sensations and the things that we do uh, on a daily basis. And I'm, I'm sure it's critical uh, for events like ultra marathons. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I think that that, that just knowing that is absolutely fascinating, but it, like I said earlier, it's something that's entirely lost on a lot of people, but it really shouldn't be because we have this really common, we have this really common phrase that we know. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to ask you one other point about, um, an ergogenic aid that has popped up, uh, kind of more recently, uh, that I wanted to get your input on. So we we've seen across the sports performance landscape and it, it hasn't really made its way into the endurance landscape as much as, as it has like strength and conditioning with, uh, direct transcranial, direct transcranial stimulation. So the concept is, and nobody can see this because I'm, I'm, because uh, this is a podcast. But the concept is, is you have a set of, you have this thing that looks like a set of headphones, and what it's doing is, is it's passing uh, electricity through your motor, motor cortex at a, a very light rate. It's the amount of electricity that it takes to send a text message is how people uh, analogize it to. And the theory is, is that it reduces the, the action potential that's necessary to produce a voluntary contraction. And the use case for an athlete is, is they put these headphones in, they zap their brain, they go out and train. And then that training is either done at a higher level because of this effect, or it has bigger adaptations because of something else that is going on. Is this a plausible mechanism of adaptation your opinion and what and what's going on so the research findings on the use of this kind of direct uh current stimulation of the brain is very mixed uh, some studies have found positive outcomes and some have found no influence at all but let me just phrase the, uh, the question in a slightly different way so you're passing um electrical current from one side of the brain to the other side of the brain. Now, our brains contain many different things, and only one very small part of the brain is involved in generating this activation signal. So it seems to me that we're stretching our imagination if we imagine stimulating all parts of the brain is going to have a functional consequence on this one part that is really critical. Um, some of these studies have, have, uh, have not been able to distinguish between a placebo effect and a real effect. So if an athlete thinks this is going to work, uh, there's a good possibility it will work, even though there's no physiological basis for it. So I, I don't think there's sufficient evidence to suggest that this is a, is a worthwhile ergogenic aid uh, yet. Maybe it is, but the evidence is not there. Yeah, it's a tough deal and it's hard to it's hard to placebo control it because I've I've experienced it before. I've had uh, a unit to 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 test out. And um the way that I describe the sensation, it's like if you were to lick a 9-volt battery, you know that sensation where you lick a 9-volt yeah. everybody did that when I was a kid, at least I did it when I was a kid. But if you put it on top of your head, that's the sensation you have. And it's yeah. hard to placebo control something like that. Well, you can change the intensity or change the right. frequency. I mean, you could manipulate the electrical current in some ways to do that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah. it's just something that that pot that has been popping up more recently yeah. in in sports science, and it's. I mean, it, there's no doubt that it's gotten hot. I mean, especially professional sports teams, they tend to be um, yeah. they tend to want like first mover positions on those and early adopters to that type type of technology, even adva in advance of the research coming out that demonstrates that it's efficacious yeah. or not. 
Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't underappreciate the importance of practical observations. I think often a an experienced clinician or an experienced coach has uh, more reasonable ideas about what's going on than does a scientist. So I think you know both both perspectives are very important, um, and but scientists are usually a bit slower to, on the uptake. Uh, and necessarily so right slower and much more deliberate <laughs> i always think of how many things that have how many things that have been jumped on too soon that we've that we have later on down the road had to retract and say yeah that was a really bad idea i mean i could go through a hundred of them <laughs> and this might be one at the yeah. end of the day it wouldn't surprise me yeah, yeah. Okay, Roger, we're going to let you go. I really appreciate your time uh, with us this morning. Um, I'm going to include in the show notes some uh, links to your research, but where can they, where can listeners find out a little bit more about what you guys do at the University of Colorado? Um, so you can go to the website for our department, which is the Department of Integrative Physiology. And if you just go to the research, you can scroll down and find my name and just click on that and I'll take you to my lab webpage and you can see what we're up to. What's coming up next? What do you guys have in the pipeline right now? Uh, so we have, uh, one of the things we're very interested in is manipulating sensory feedback in people with multiple sclerosis. Mm. And we find that early on in the disease progression, if we apply electrical stimulation that activates just sensory nerves, it improves the mobility of people with MS immensely. Uh, so much so that when they participate in the study, they go out and buy their own electrical stimulation device. So mm. you don't need statistics to tell you that they think it's effective. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I always, I've, there's been a very robust history of research that starts in a diseased population whether it's mm -hmm. multiple sclerosis or diabetes is one that's coming to the top of my mind right now that eventually makes its way into sports performance. Yeah, um, yeah. So maybe we might see that a few years down the line. I think that's super interesting research. Yeah, yeah. we may. Yeah. Well, it was good to see you again, Jason, and yeah. to talk with you. Yeah, yeah, good to see you as well. I really appreciate the time. All right, and there you have it. There you go. Thanks to Roger for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate your time and your expertise. And I promise I'm going to hold on to this book for as long as it will hold up. It is getting a little bit ragged. The uh, spine in particular has definitely seen better days. But as long as the pages are legible, I'm going to hold on to it. Appreciate the heck out of all the listeners today. And hey, 2021 is here. Races are coming back on the calendar. And if you think that one of our coaches is right for you to get you ready for any of the big or audacious goals that you have for 2021, hit me up on social media or go check out trainright.com for all of our coaching package options. We would love to work with you and we are always taking on new athletes that have big goals. That's it for today, folks. As always, we will see you out on the trails.